You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Ukrainian security services complain of DDoS from Russia. The Excelion compromise is attributed to an extortion gang. Digital Shadow tracks the rise of initial access brokers, new middlemen in the criminal-to-criminal market. A botmaster uses an agile C2 infrastructure to avoid takedowns. IT executives to appear at U.S. Senate hearings on Solarigate. U.S. DHS talks up its cyber strategies. Ben Yellen comments on the latest court ruling on device searches at the border. Rick Howard speaks with Ariel Asara from CoraLogix on SOAR and SIM. And don't be deceived by bogus FedEx and DHL fishbait. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, February 23rd, 2021. Ukrainian news agency Union reports that Ukraine's SBU security services says it's been under distributed denial of service attack for several days. SBU representatives told Ukrainska Pravda that the attack is obviously connected with Russia's ongoing hybrid war against Ukraine. The attack against secure file-sharing service provider Excelion has been attributed to the Fin11 and Klopp ransomware gangs. FireEye's Mandiant unit, which has been working with Excelion to respond to the incident, says that exploitation began in mid-December and that the victims began receiving extortion notices in January. It appears to have been a pure extortion campaign. The Klopp ransomware itself seems not to have been deployed. FireEye has remarked in the past that Fin11's successes have been predicated more on volume than on technical sophistication. So as the old Crazy Eddie commercials used to ask, what's your secret? And then gave the immediate answer, volume. Excelion has issued guidelines for its customers to help protect themselves against further damage from the compromise of its FTA service. In particular, the company recommends that FTA customers migrate to the company's KiteWorks service. Researchers at security firm Digital Shadows this morning released a report on initial access brokers, which they see as a relatively young emerging sector of the criminal-to-criminal market. While they've been monitoring initial access brokers since 2014, during this past year they've found some 500 criminals or criminal gangs selling initial access in underworld markets. The brokers serve, for the most part, ransomware operators. Initial access brokers find vulnerable organizations and then, acting as a middleman, sell access to potential victims to criminals who use that access to conduct ransomware attacks. 
The growth of this criminal market represents another stage in lowering the barriers to entry for less skilled cybercriminals. The middlemen have also learned from experience to obscure and redact the identities of the accessible networks they're hawking, the better to escape the attention of law enforcement organizations. The brokers rely on scanning tools to identify accessible networks. Should you have entertained any hope that they would regard certain targets... Let us say, for example, healthcare organizations or essential services, well, put such hope aside. They don't appear to regard any targets as off-limits. Digital shadows suggest that companies use threat intelligence, and in particular threat intelligence designed to detect when their own network's compromise might be up for sale, to disrupt the criminal's approach. Security firm Akamai reports that it's tracking a criminal botnet operator that's started leveraging Bitcoin blockchain transactions in order to hide its backup C2 IP address. It's a simple yet effective way to defeat takedown attempts. The group is able to fetch real-time data from a decentralized source in a way that enables it to generate command and control IP addresses in simple and quick pivots. Akamai has made a comprehensive list of indicators of compromise available. SolarWinds' still relatively new CEO Sudhakar Ramakrishna will appear before a congressional committee investigating SolarGate this week, according to the Washington Post. His public statements foreshadow the testimony he's believed likely to give. FCW reports that he told the Center for Strategic and International Studies virtual meeting yesterday that what happened to SolarWinds could have happened to anyone. He's also advocated, NextGov says incentivized risk information sharing with some protection against liability. Some such protections have already been enacted, but Ramakrishna thinks more are in order. He also points out that restrictive clauses in federal contracts have sometimes inhibited fuller information sharing. The hearings are taking place before the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Ramakrishna will not be the only tech executive to appear on Capitol Hill today, He'll be joined by FireEye Chief Executive Kevin Mandia, Microsoft President Brad Smith, and CrowdStrike Chief Executive and President George Kurtz. MSSP Alert thinks that at least two questions are likely to be addressed during the hearings. First, how much cleaning up after the SolarWinds supply chain compromise is likely to cost? And second, what's the impact on company revenues? Specifically, with respect to SolarWinds itself, did its disclosures prompt buyer concerns? Did the company lose revenue, and is it experiencing other forms of revenue pressure? The U.S. Department of Homeland Security has announced a range of intentions aimed at furthering President Biden's call for improved security. The department's announcement suggests more continuity than change, as it describes with satisfaction such accomplishments as securing the 2020 election against cyber attack, especially by timely information sharing with state and local election officials, lending urgency to remediation and providing incident response assistance, collaborating with government and private sector partners to defend against North Korean cyber attacks on financial institutions, improving vulnerability disclosure, and facilitating the growth of shared cybersecurity services among federal civilian agencies. Among new initiatives announced will be a campaign to reduce the risk posed by ransomware and a new requirement that recipients of federal emergency management agency grants increase their minimum cybersecurity spend. 
And finally, be on the lookout for phishing emails baited with what appears to be notices from shippers FedEx or DHL Express. Armor Blocks this morning warned that a campaign was in progress and that it appeared to be targeting, for the most part, Microsoft email users. The fish bait is pretty convincing, but of course entirely bogus. Still, it does look like the sort of shipping notice one might receive, and it would be easy to bite. The criminal's goal appears to be theft of work email credentials. The lures use convincing logos and layouts, and an unwary user more attuned to look than language might fall for them. But some of the examples ArmorBlocks gives suggest that the crooks still suffer from weak idiomatic control. Still, look and think before you click. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. The CyberWire's own CSO, Rick Howard, has been talking to experts about DevOps and infrastructure as code and how that design philosophy applies to security. He files this report. For the past few years, the SIEM market has been going through some changes as vendors transition to delivering their product from the cloud and competing with SOAR products to move the security community closer to the DevSecOps model. I sat down with Ariel Asaraf, founder and CEO of CoreLogic, a SIEM product on this changing and perhaps merging landscape. I started by asking Ariel 
to clear up a misunderstanding in the InfoSec community about the cost of storing SIEM data in the cloud. I think what a lot of companies try to do, and they provide very good uh, products, but what they try to do is to take um, SIEM that was uh, deployed on-prem and just put it on the cloud. And then say, okay, in the cloud, my infrastructure uh, limitations are smaller because I can easily scale and I can use a lot of, of uh, disk. So I think that the problem is solved. But then you run into another problem, which is there's just too much data. Um, that means that is extremely expensive and that means that there's a lot of clutter. So when we took Seam to the cloud, we said, okay, it's not enough to just put it in the cloud. Um, we need to figure out a new way to handle data because companies on cloud are actually generating a lot more data than companies on-prem because what we just said, it's easier to scale, it's easier to add machines, it's easier to add devices. The cost of storing is not lower, but the option of scaling the storage and machines is, is much easier. Among the new features in these new cloud-delivered seams are the way that they can process alerts. Now we ingest, analyze, and then store. So. We know a lot of stuff on the data way before it's stored into the storage. So we understand, uh, for instance, whether um, uh, a specific record has a suspected IP or specific records form an anomaly or something triggered an alert that you care about or something was enriched with uh, uh, your own data source making it important. Or if you define a certain component to be critical and, 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 and you define that it has to be stored. So we know all that before we get to the point where we store the data. So we only put the relevant information under the index and all the rest of the information goes to an archive that can be queried on a lower frequency, um, just in case you, know, you need the forensics or for compliance reasons. Another interesting change in the SEAM market, as well as the SOAR market, is a convergence of the two. SOAR tools are adopting SEAM capability and SIEM tools are adopting SOAR capabilities. It started with a few interesting acquisitions. Um, you know, you look at Splunk and Phantom and then uh, Sumologic and JASP. So obviously we, we see acquisitions and then merging those products into a, a single solution of SIEM and, and, and uh, um, SOAR. I think that there's so much to do in both of them that it's, it's going to take some time. At the end, just like the DevOps tools, again, I like to compare these two markets. DevOps tools started with matrix products and then uh, log analytics products uh, in separate and then APM separately. And then they're all combining to these mega observability platforms. I think the same will happen with security. It's going to take some time. Seams have been around since the early 2000s, but SOAR has only popped up in the last three years. Still, it wouldn't surprise me that in just a few short years, we won't have separate categories for these products. They will merge into a bigger product of combined capability. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, great to have you back. Good to be with you again, Dave. Uh, interesting article. This is uh, from uh, the Courthouse News Service, uh, and it's uh, written by Thomas F. Harrison. It's titled, First Circuit Upholds Border Searches of Phones and Laptops. 
this is an ongoing thing here. Uh, more, uh, I don't know, confirmation that uh, the folks at the border have the uh, right to uh, <laughs> rifle through our belongings. Yeah, it sure is. So we've seen a lot of conflicting case law on this. This is a pretty serious problem because the last year for which we have reliable data, 2017, there were 30,000 of these searches uh, at the border. So it's more common uh, than you would think. And this, we're talking about searches of the digital devices of U.S. persons. So it's hmm. not, you know, searching people who are tourists to, the, to this country or who are immigrating to this country. It's people who are U.S. citizens. So what hmm. the First Circuit is saying in this decision is that Border searches qualify as what's known as a special need uh, in Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, meaning it's a special governmental need beyond, you know, mere law enforcement, beyond mere the mere apprehension of criminals, because it, you know, we need strict border searches to protect our national integrity, to protect our safety. Uh, and so as a result of that, they're saying that warrantless searches of these devices at the border, so at airports or at at border crossings are allowed even if the border agents don't actually have any suspicion. Uh, And this is in conflict of what another uh, judicial circuit has said. The Ninth Circuit said that uh, in order to have these searches, you have to have at least reasonable suspicion that you're going to find something uh, of value. I, you know... It's it's obviously I respect the need to uh, protect our borders, to, uh, you know, make sure that everybody we let into the United States or back into the United States uh, is not going to do anything to jeopardize our security. But, you know, there are some issues in having these suspicionless searches at the border. One thing that this case brings up is there are some racial and ethnic biases that go into the decisions to uh, search devices. So all of the plaintiffs in this case brought by the ACLU or and the Electronic Frontier Foundation are Muslims or people of color. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's something where suspicionless is uh, maybe the term of art, uh, but there perhaps is some suspicion uh, merely on the basis of somebody's race or ethnicity. And I think that's something that uh, for which we need to be mindful. Yeah, this article uh, points out some nuance here that I was not aware of. It says that uh, current government policy is that agents can rummage through phones and laptops for no reason, although they can't access the Internet while they search, and they must have reasonable suspicion to hook the device up to an external machine to extract data or to view deleted or encrypted files. Uh, yeah. That's interesting put, every, to me. put everything on the cloud, people. That seems to be the lesson here. <laughs> be careful what you write in your notes application because, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right there for the taking. Or, as we've talked about, uh, any alerts you're getting, notifications uh, on your phone, or the picture that you use as your background. Don't mm-hmm. show yourself selling drugs in that picture. Um, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like that's kind of a... And I'm sure there are reasons for it, but it seems to me to be, at least on its face, kind of an arbitrary dividing line. You mm-hmm. know, if it's okay to rummage through somebody's device, how much of a difference does it make uh, if you have internet connectivity? I mean, yeah. I guess it makes some difference, but it just seems to me like a a, a bizarre place to to draw a distinction. Does this push us one step closer to having this head to the Supreme Court? Yeah, so anytime you see a circuit split like this, uh, that's usually that usually means uh, that we're on a collision course that will end up at the Supreme Court. Um, it doesn't always mean that, uh, but it certainly makes it more likely. 
this means that you've had uh, some of our most prominent jurists looking at the same issue and coming to different conclusions. And that might need to, you know, require something that leads to a, a Supreme Court resolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose in this case, that would be uh, welcome to have some, uh, I don't know, some finality on this. Yes, just some clarity, you know, so people that can have expectations when they're crossing the border. Is it acceptable for Customs and Border Patrol agents to search my laptop without any suspicion. Um, mm-hmm. Right now, it's largely unclear and perhaps based on where you are making your border entry, because that determines which federal uh, court of appeals has jurisdiction. So, oh, you know, yeah. the First Circuit is in the Northeast. Uh, so make of that what you will. The Ninth Circuit is is on the West Coast. Um, you know, perhaps there are some important nuance and, and differences in terms of the, the geography. Right, right. You can shop your border crossing on based on privacy, right? Yeah. How you want to hmm. come in and out. Yeah. Maybe I'll use the, uh, you know, L.A. airport instead of the New York airport, even if it's mm-hmm. uh, a little bit out of the way, right? <laughs> just a little, just yeah. a little. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, interesting development for sure. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. So much pin-punishing power, it's almost unfair. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Filecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.